Hi everyone, welcome back. I had a couple months break there from the podcast to work on some other projects, but I am back at it. Picking up where we left off on the history of Zionism and how Israel came to be. So today, let's start discussing the elephant in the room. How Zionism thought about the Arabs living in Palestine. Who came first? I get asked this a lot on birthright trips. Who was here first? Was it the Arabs or the Jews? I have found that this question, perhaps more than any other, lends itself to the most misconceptions and the most controversy. As one participant told me while we walked through Jerusalem one day, she said, I'm against Israel because they came to this place they had no right to be, invaded the Palestinian state, and now just seize on the land because we think we're superior to them. So I asked her, well, what if I were to explain that the Jews were actually indigenous to this area, that there was never a Palestinian state, and that Zionism isn't a supremacist ideology? Would that change her mind? And she said, yes, it would change my mind. Except she'd never heard that before, and she wasn't sure she'd believe me even if I told her. So that's how it goes with the Arab-Israeli conflict. There are so many competing ideologies and narratives and so much moralizing over who is the underdog and who is the oppressor, who is the victim and who is the perpetrator, and who deserves what support or what antagonism based on those distinctions. And on the one hand, I get it. I mean, establishing who was here first might be a convenient shortcut for us to decide who is worthy of our moral support, who we think is deserving of getting to be there now. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that helps us much these days. Israel is here to stay along with the Jews. This is our home. And the same for the Arabs. Jews and Arabs have to somehow reconcile their historical narratives in such a way that they can all coexist with one another. But still, this is Jew I don't know, and we ought to know our history. We need to know how this question fits into the modern picture we're painting of Zionism and the creation of the Jewish state in Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. All right, so here we go. I would say to young people that they can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so let's start moving the action out of Europe and into Palestine, where the Jewish state is just starting to grow. From the very beginning, the early Zionist leaders were well aware of the Arabs living in Palestine. And each of the various branches of our Zionist tree had a different viewpoint. And I think it's fair to say that the relationship between the Jews and the Arabs has reflected a messy amalgamation of all these viewpoints. So that's what I want to start discussing today. I'll be honest with you. I rewrote this episode several times. I mean like four or five. And I'm still not super happy with it. Because I feel like I've got two things going on here that both need to be addressed but that don't go neatly together. One is just the history of what's going on in this era and applying our Jew I don't know philosophy. That is, seeking to understand why things happened the way they happened, why people acted the way they did, that kind of stuff. But the second part is connected to the first part, which is why Zionism has become such a dirty word today, especially in American progressive circles. We hear it all the time, or at least I do. Zionism is the ultimate expression of white supremacy, racism, and colonialism. Anyone who supports Israel is a Zionist and therefore an oppressor. It's an argument I hate because it's so wrong, and I want you all to understand why I find it illegitimate. But the hard part is that while we need to understand this early history to explain what's going on today, the whole Zionism is racism argument has so much other additional baggage that I risk going way off on a tangent, which I hate doing. 
So yeah, okay, I have no answer. Let's just see how I do, and I'm sure there'll be things that I can come back to down the road. You can also jump onto my website, jewautonode.com, click on the contact tab, and send me an email with questions or comments. And also, maybe I'll follow up with some blog posts along the way. Anyway, let's get into it. Now, there is no disputing, of course, that Arabs are living in Palestine in the time period we're talking about. Basically, the late 1800s and early 1900s. About 500,000 Arabs lived in hundreds of mostly small villages throughout the area that is today modern Israel. And the area was called Palestine. But here's the thing, it wasn't a Palestinian state. There's never been a Palestinian state in the sense of a modern politically defined nation like a France or an Israel. In fact, the people who we today call Palestinians were not called Palestinians back then. They were Arabs. Because anyone who lived in Palestine was a Palestinian. Muslim, Jew, Christian, Arab, non-Arab. In other words, a Palestinian did not refer to a specific group of people, but anyone who was living in the territory of Palestine. So, if it wasn't a Palestinian state, what was it? Well, since the year 1516, the territory of Palestine was a part of the Ottoman Empire. By the late 1800s, it was managed through a series of administrative bureaucracies, agreements, and local and regional rulers, Christians, Jews, and Muslims generally managed their own communities autonomously. Each attended to their own affairs, whether in terms of religion or education or criminal justice. So Palestine didn't refer to a single defined territory with borders. It was more a term for the general area of what we would today call Israel, parts of Jordan and Lebanon, the West Bank and Gaza, and even parts of Syria. The Arabs in that territory then, they weren't their own national unit. They were tied to a wide variety of tribes and regions and villages and communities, which were themselves tied to a largely dysfunctional and pretty corrupt Ottoman system based in Istanbul. And just to add more clarification, the Arabs weren't in charge of Palestine. The Turks were, since the Turks ran the Ottoman Empire. So let's be clear, neither the Palestinians nor the Arabs ever had their own independent state before Israel was established in 1948. And something else important. We use this number 2,000 years a lot when talking about Zionism. For 2,000 years we say the Jewish people didn't have a homeland. Or, the creation of Israel in 1948 ended 2,000 years of Jewish exile. What we mean by this 2,000 years number is not that there were no Jews in Palestine since ancient times, but that Jews hadn't been sovereign there since then. In other words, the last time that the Jews had control over this territory was in the first century before the Common Era. It's important to understand that while the Romans had ended Jewish rule in Palestine 2,000 years ago, the Jews themselves never fully left. So to get to the original question at the beginning of this episode, who came first, the Jews or the Arabs? The answer is that the Jews never left in the first place. We just lost sovereignty there during that first century. In fact, Jews remained the majority population of Palestine for the next several hundred years, until somewhere around the 4th century. Then the Christians became the majority and had control over the region. Muslims became the majority about a thousand years ago and remained so until Israel was created in 1948. And the Jewish population has historically been pretty small. At various times there might only have been a couple thousand Jews living in Palestine. 
And by the Zionist era that we're talking about, the Jewish minority was around 10% or less of the entire population. The point of all this is that the Jews never left the land of Israel since ancient times. We lost control over the territory around 2,000 years ago, and we didn't get it back until Israel in 1948. But the Jews have had a continuous presence in the area of Palestine going back at least 3,000 years now, even a bit longer. On the other hand, I am sensitive to the very valid argument that, well, there's a difference between that there were a few thousand indigenous Jews, and then there was this influx of tens of thousands of European Jews coming in to fulfill the Zionist dream in this era. We talk about Jewish immigration to Palestine, starting with the, very appropriately named, first Aliyah. In Hebrew, the word Aliyah means to ascend, to go up. In ancient times, one made Aliyah to literally walk up the stairs to the temple in Jerusalem. Today, Aliyah has come to symbolize the idea that immigrating to Eretz Yisrael is an act of raising up one's soul, of fulfilling a spiritual need to be in the Jewish homeland. The first Aliyah period ran from 1882 to around 1903, and somewhere between 25,000 and 35,000 Jews arrived, mostly from Eastern Europe. Although by the end of that period, only about half or less, or some people say even 90% less, ended up staying, because, well, life was really hard. It turns out that it was tough to be a Zionist in real life. We'll get into that in later episodes. So then the question becomes, where did they live? And here's where it starts to get interesting. I mean, hopefully it's already been interesting because this is like the seventh episode of season two. And if you were bored, you probably already left. But by interesting, I mean controversial and complicated. Because now we start talking about the land and whose land it was and how the Jews got it and how the Arabs felt about it. I will remind you that there are umpteen books written on the subject and we're going to hammer it out in just a few minutes. The classic accusation against Zionism, which we hear a lot these days, at least in the Bay Area, is that Zionism is the ultimate expression of white imperial European colonialism, a historically awful system of exploitation and oppression. The Jews supposedly came in out of nowhere, forcibly separated from the native and indigenous Arabs who were living there, unfairly stole their land, and, in general, behaved like an imperial power. But the problem with this argument is that the Jews weren't coming to Palestine for that reason. They weren't acting on behalf of a European power in order to extract the local resources and send them back to enrich the empire. Quite the opposite. They were actually escaping the European powers. That was the whole point of Zionism. They were coming not as colonialists, but to settle permanently in the region and develop a new state there. And as we established a few minutes ago, the Jews already considered themselves indigenous to the land, which also they'd never actually left. And by the way, there's no reason that the Arabs cannot also consider themselves native to the land. This is not a zero-sum game in which only one people can be native. Nor did the Zionists come blazing into Palestine with an army to subdue the local population and extract their labor and resources. They came in as a distinct minority and set about developing small, mostly agricultural settlements. So if the Zionists were colonizers, rather than colonialists, that begs the question, so how'd they get the land? And the short answer is, well, they bought it. They bought it from the Ottoman Turks and Arab absentee landowners who sold the land legally to the Jews. The Zionists bought up tens of thousands of acres, mostly along the coast south of Haifa and inland in the Jordan and Jezreel valleys, just above what is today the West Bank. 
The problem for the Zionists was that this land was generally terrible. Swampy, not suitable for agriculture, unbearably hot, not connected to larger areas with much in the way of infrastructure. And that's why a lot of them ended up leaving. But by the opening years of the 1900s, there were around 55,000 Jews living in Palestine. Other than hiring the occasional Arab laborer or interacting with local Arabs in the larger towns, the Jews mostly kept themselves separate. And this has become yet another criticism of early Zionism. The idea that these arrogant, aloof European Jews came into Palestine and refused to interact with the native Arab population on an equal level. But you have to remember that this was how things worked in the Muslim Middle East for more than a thousand years. Muslim rulers had developed an entire system of separation between Muslims and those who then considered second-class religious communities, namely Christians and Jews, dictating most aspects of political, economic, and social engagement. A great scholar of Israeli history and a professor of mine at Brandeis University, Elan Troen, recently wrote, Faulting the Zionists for not implementing the kind of egalitarian and integrated civil society that had yet to be actualized even in the United States is an exercise of imagination that borders on fantasy. And let's also not forget something else important. Zionism wasn't about the Arabs, or even really about Jewish relations with non-Jews. Zionism's focus was on the Jews. The root system of our Zionist tree, in which the Jews and Judaism were in great danger of being snuffed out, either through mass murder and persecution or through assimilation. So the early Zionists who came to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, they weren't there to foster relations with the Arabs to create a new society together. Zionism was about creating cultural change amongst the Jews. Still, let's not pretend that this didn't all have an impact on the native Arab population. It is definitely the case that some Jewish settlements ended up displacing local Arab farmers who lost their land or had to move elsewhere. Though, again, we're talking very small numbers here, and we're not talking actual land theft so much as buying out the Arabs or providing them compensation for lost land value. And let's also not pretend that the Zionists didn't have grander ambitions to transform the whole region into a Jewish majority state, and they set out from the beginning to make that happen. Which brings us to the question of how the different branches of our Zionist tree viewed the native Arabs. Quick refresher, I like to think of Zionism as looking like a tree, a Bay Area redwood tree. The main trunk stands for the classical Zionist goal, the renewal of the Jewish people through the creation of a Jewish state in our ancient homeland. Different branches of the tree represent different streams of Zionism, and not all of them go along well together, though some do. But all feed to this central idea of renewal. Like many aspects of Zionism that we've already discussed in previous episodes, which tree branch you sit on determines your perspective on the major questions. So far I've talked about political Zionists, the cultural Zionists, and the labor Zionists. There will be other branches forming in the coming episodes. But let's look at how each of those three branches looked at the Arabs. <laughs>
political Zionists, led by Theodore Herzl, were so focused on building this Jewish state in Palestine that they kind of glossed over the Arabs who were already living there. I like to say that Herzl had a huge blind spot for the Arabs, but that's not quite correct. It wasn't that he didn't see the Arabs, it's just that Herzl thought that the creation of the Jewish state was going to bring such a high level of modernity and prosperity and political freedom and culture that the Arab population would welcome the Jews with open arms. Life was going to be so good for everyone, he thought that there wouldn't be any conflict between Arabs and Jews. In fact, Herzl had such a utopian view of this relationship that he wrote a fictionalized account of an election in which an overtly racist Jewish party tries to curtail the equal rights of non-Jews, that is, the Arabs. The Jewish racists in this story lose and are driven out of the country. Herzl was very clear that the kind of racism the Jews experienced in Europe would not be tolerated towards anyone else in the Jewish state. His Zionism then, political Zionism, was explicitly and deliberately anti-racist. It was also pretty naive in ways that are totally obvious to us now. But remember, Herzl and the political Zionists felt a great sense of urgency in quickly establishing a state with the support of the European nations. It's like they were saying, let's get this done, and don't worry about the Arabs, the project's going to benefit them too. So it fit their goals to kind of gloss over the Arabs by, in effect, over-promising the benefits. And as much as we today can see how Herzl's strategy was unsophisticated, it was also short-sighted even to some Zionist leaders back then, like Ahad Ha'am and the cultural Zionists. And remember that their goal was different than Herzl's. Ahad Ha'am was mostly just looking to create a small settlement in Palestine that would serve as a spiritual center for the Jewish people, only gradually over generations bringing in enough Jews to create a state. Ahad Ha'am, unlike Herzl, visited Palestine on several occasions and wrote extensively about what he saw there. And none of it was good. He reported on the grim conditions of the Jewish settlers there, who struggled to produce enough food or find enough work, or even to find the motivation to stay living there. But he also criticized the Jewish settlers and the Jews back home in Europe for their attitudes towards the Arabs. He wrote that we should be cautious in our dealings with a foreign people among whom we return to live, to handle these people with love and respect and with justice and good judgment. And what do our brothers do? Exactly the opposite. He described the settlers' dealings with the Arabs as unjust and cruel, hostile and contemptuous. He appealed to Jewish teachings about what happens when a former slave becomes king. In other words, the European persecution that we have freed ourselves from by moving to Eretz Yisrael, we are visiting upon the native Arab population. Ahad Ha'am leveled that classic judgment, the oppressed are becoming the oppressor. He warned that the consequences would be serious. The Arabs, he said, understand what we are doing and what we wish to do on the land. For now they do not consider our actions as presenting a future danger to them. But if the time comes that our people's life in Eretz Yisrael will develop to a point where we are taking their place, the natives are not going to just step aside so easily. And, he continued, they keep anger in their hearts, and these people will be revengeful like no other. So, wow. I mean, this was in the 1890s and yet so prescient. And even though Ahad Ha'am was talking about a Jewish population that back then numbered in just a few tens of thousands, his views on the Arabs seemed remarkably accurate. 
Now, I think there's a huge difference between Ahad Ha'am's criticisms back then and the criticisms of Zionism on my Facebook feed. So I'm trying to decide if I should devote the next episode on that topic or just keep moving things along through history. I have to, I'm on the fence about it. But what I also find fascinating, and I've talked about this before, is how modern Israel reflects both Herzl and Ahad Ha'am's divergent ideas. They each got things right, and they got things wrong. Herzl was right in his optimism that the Jewish state would soon be created. And he was also right that on balance, the life of an Arab-Israeli citizen is much more free and prosperous than those of Arabs in the surrounding Arab countries. But he was wrong, clearly, about the response of the Arab natives to the influx of Jewish settlement. For his part, Ahad Ha'am was wrong in his pessimism about the ability of Jewish immigrants to create a state. They not only established a nation, but also turned it into a spiritual center for Judaism, fulfilling both Herzl's and Ahad Ha'am's ideals. But Ahad Ha'am sure seems right on the early origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Yet there were still other Zionist viewpoints. Last episode, a couple months ago, I talked about the labor Zionist branch of the Zionism Redwood Tree. The, la the labor Zionists, like A.D. Gordon, were focused on fusing socialist ideas with agricultural labor to ensure the Jewish connection to the land. A.D. Gordon saw the Arabs through the ideals of the Torah, around protecting the stranger in your midst. He felt that the Jews' treatment of the Arabs would be crucial to the success of the coming Jewish homeland. He therefore advocated policies to accommodate the native Arabs as much as possible. For instance, he had the idea that every new Jewish settlement should also allocate adjacent plots of land specifically for the Arabs. Our relations to the Arabs must rest on cosmic foundations, he said. Our attitude towards them must be one of humanity, of moral courage which remains on the highest plane, even if the behavior of the other side is not all that is desired. Indeed, their hostility is all the more reason for our humanity. Indeed, the Arabs were not, as you know, universally thrilled to welcome these new Jewish settlers. Jewish nationalism, Zionism, have been in the works for decades now, but Arab nationalism was just starting to sprout. Herzl was right that the influx of Jewish settlers was economically beneficial for the Arabs. The increase in trade, agriculture, and other commercial businesses not only boosted the economy, but encouraged Arabs from other parts of the Ottoman Empire to immigrate into Palestine, seeking better fortunes. But of course, economic benefits only get you so far when both the perception and reality of Jewish immigration was of a changing region that probably wasn't going to be in the native Arabs' long-term best interests. Those European Jews were very much the other. And so there was also great hostility and a lot of tension between Arabs and Jews at the start of the 20th century. But before we get deeper into that story, let's stick with the Zionists. We've now seen them translate the spiritual idea of a Jewish return to Eretz Yisrael with actually doing it. They've developed the ideological, political, and financial infrastructure to start bringing tens of thousands of European Jews into the land of Israel. But still, to build a state, you need more than just bodies and commerce. You also need culture. And to have culture, you have to have a common communication. And for a common communication, you need a common language. 
The question is, what language should all these European Jews from all these different European countries speak? The Zionists had an answer for that too. They reinvented Hebrew. That's next time. Talk to you then.